اتقوا الله إن الله خبير بما تعملون so an iftar is the meal Muslims have to break the fast. Uh, it's at sundown and it's during the month of Ramadan. And usually we will break fast with dates and water when we hear the call to prayer. I'm Ida Mansour and I am the Field Education Director for Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. So a Passover Seder is the set of rituals and narratives that we perform and read as we go through a meal in celebration of God's redeeming the Jewish people from slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt and bringing them to freedom with signs and wonders. It's our reenactment of that ancient experience. I'm Dina Grant, and I am Acting Dean and Associate Professor of Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. This is Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Ambreen Khan. During the pandemic, many communities had to make changes and adapt how they gather. Several moved online, but not for Dina Grant's Orthodox community. Using technology was not an option. And for Ida Mansour, that meant during the month of Ramadan, the evening gatherings to recite the Quran could not happen. It wasn't just individual and communal practices that were interrupted. Open houses and multi-faith gatherings were canceled. But this year, things are open, and for many communities, they're making up for lost time, including the folks at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace, formerly known as Hartford Seminary. It's a unique institution and has been a leader innovating and responding to the pluralism and diversity of the changing faith community. So last year when Dina and Ida looked at the calendars and discovered Passover and the Muslim month of Ramadan would overlap, they decided to do something. Because followers of Islam and Judaism maintain distinct lunar calendars, this crossover of Ramadan and Passover is unique. In fact, it's not going to happen again until 2054. Yep, 31 years. For the colleagues at Hartford University, this was an opportunity to get creative. But it took months of planning and negotiating. I caught up with Dina Grant and Ada Mansour after the model Seder and Iftar to learn how they were able to do it, if it was harder than they thought, and what they learned along the way. What was the kind of impetus, the inspiration for this model Passover Seder and Iftar gathering that you did this past weekend? I've done a number of model seders here and um, elsewhere. And I was thinking, should I do a model seder this year? Should I not? Uh, What could, you know, um, what would be different perhaps after the pandemic? And then Ida mentioned that Ramadan was happening and it really occurred to me, hey, we have, we're here at HIU. There are Muslim and Jewish students and staff and faculty, and we're both celebrating a, you know, an especially uplifting time in our religious communities. We're doing it completely separately. We, we almost don't even know uh, the extent to what the other is doing. And I just thought, hey, 
this would be really interesting if we could we could you know share in our celebrations or celebrate alongside one another in in some way let's just break that down for a second what is a model seder yeah the word seder means order and it describes the rituals that we engage in as we go through the festive meal of reenacting the movement from slavery to freedom. Now that that ritual meal takes place next Wednesday, but we can't easily do it on that night. So a model Seder is what one might call a kind of teaching and preparation for the what's called halachic Seder, the legal Seder that will be happening. It's a mitzvah, it's a commandment to prepare for the Seder. We do it for teaching, but it's also an opportunity um, for me to get in the framework and in the mindset for fulfilling the commandments of having a halachic Seder. You know, we're doing these rituals that have been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. So to keep it fresh and to keep it more relevant, uh, it's important to think about something new, a, a new learning that can come out of these ancient rituals. Ida, is there anything similar that happens within the Muslim tradition? It was interesting. I was talking to Dina while we were preparing and and, we, and she asked me the same question. She said, so what, so what do you do? And so we have dates and water. And she said, OK, we could do that. And then I said, so I originally come from Sri Lanka. And in Sri Lanka, we have soup uh, as, you know, sort of a starting point because it's light on the stomach. And in the soup, we have, um, like it's a chicken broth with wheat and barley. And, and she said, oh, we can't have chicken. So what shall we, and so we came to this compromise in terms of let's have lentil soup. And so, um, <laughs> so we usually have a soup um, and then uh, we pray the concept prayer and then we come back and have the meal. Um, and and it, the meal depends on what where you are. I mean, if you were in Sri Lanka, for instance, you probably would have rice and curry and, and that kind of thing. A lot of my um, African-American uh, colleagues uh, love fried chicken, and so do I, by the way. Um, and they'll, they'll have fried chicken and, and uh, fried fish and, and, and various foods like that. And then, you know, people from the Indian subcontinent, a lot of them will have a lot of fried foods, um, like samosas and, and pakoras and those kinds of things. Um, so that's the yeah. You know, so it's, it depends on the culture uh, where you come from in terms of what you would eat. One thing that that we found interesting was when Ida and I were preparing what to eat and when to eat. It got really complicated. She wanted to make sure that, of course, that they eat right when the fast concludes, which I think was was Ida was seven oh nine. You know, two thirds of the seder happens before the actual meal, so you're eating celery, perhaps, you're eating parsley, um, and you're waiting to eat for a bunch of hours. And we knew that we couldn't do that because people were going to be sitting there hungry. And so we had to figure out how to modify the Seder in a way that would allow for people to eat. And, and it was kind of fun trying to figure out how to get that done. How did you do it? So the Kiddush is where you sanctify, you do this every Friday night and for any holiday, um, you sanctify your meal with wine. So the first thing you do is have wine, then you basically do all of the rituals for a couple hours, and then you have the rest of your meal. But we also knew that we needed a call to prayer and eating immediately after. And yet in my tradition, you're not really supposed to have a break between reciting the 
sanctification prayer. And we were trying to figure out how are we going to manage having the kiddush, the drinking, the call to prayer, and the eating when that order doesn't work out. We conferred with a rabbi who was helping us lead it, and we kind of did part of the sanctification prior to the call to prayer. We then did the call to prayer, and then we did the last moment of the sanctification right after the call to prayer. And then everybody ate, which was wonderful. And it seemed to work really well. Did everyone know what to expect? We didn't know what to expect, actually. Um, So this is the first time we've done this. Um, I think the staff and the the faculty and the students all were sort of game for something. And um, I think they really enjoyed it. And one of the things that you shared at the event was a Haggadah. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how the one you, you have developed for this model Seder and Iftar is quite different than any Haggadah you might have seen out there? Yeah. Um, Haggadah is the booklet that tells you kind of, here's what goes next. And there are many different types of Haggadahs, some that have more commentary, some less, some that have a theme. We decided to have ours um, include teachings and um, Quranic readings uh, in honor of Ramadan. We wanted to make it kind of relate in, in one way or another to the Seder as well. So we had our typical ritual order, but of course we knew we needed to do um, uh, Ida is voodoo and Maghrib. I so never pronounced that yeah, right. So, so voodoo is the washing before we pray and then the call to prayer. Uh, and, and, and so for, for those who have never, you know, sort of seen how Muslims pray, we also invited people to come and observe if they wanted to. How did the Muslims react to inviting others to watch them pray? I think that, I mean, they were very welcoming. I'm curious how people react to seeing both the Jewish and Muslim or Islamic uh, scriptural references together in a Haggadah. Like, what was the reaction to that? So for me, I um, it was, and for the community, uh, so we, we talk about the four questions that people ask, and it's about the Seder, it's about the Passover, it's about Pharaoh, it's about Moses. And and so, you know, we looked at the part in the, in the Torah that talks about this. And we also realized that that almost identical, very similar verses are in the Quran. And I think for many, it was like, a, oh, my gosh, see how similar they are. Uh, in terms of describing Pharaoh, in terms of describing uh, Moses, peace be upon him. Um, and one of the really interesting things when I spoke to the rabbi, I said, you know, sort of we, we mention Moses in the Quran at least 136 times. And and it was it was like, oh, you know, sort of we have Moses in common. <laughs> and so it was it was a it was a, a nice thing to do. And, and it, it was a nice thing. We had a, a Muslim student. Uh, read the answers, um, the, the translation from the Quran. And it, it was, I think it was a very moving moment for everybody. Mm. Dina, what was the reaction among the Jewish students to see those parallel scriptural references? I guess I can't emphasize how surprising it is when we talk about the four questions, which are, you know, why is this night different than, than all other nights? And the answer is in the Haggadah, the answer is in you know, uh, our scripture, it didn't even occur to me that the answer would be 
recorded in the Quran. So I think it was just this, this wondrous, happy surprise for everyone and me as well. question is, how is this night different from all other nights? And then you're provided with several answers. Um, you know, it, answer one being this night is different because on this night we have matzah. On all other nights, you know, we have chametz, we have wheat. We'll have another kind of question of why on this night do we dip twice when on other nights we don't dip at all. And dipping uh, on the Passover Seder is kind of a sign of luxury as a reenactment of the movement again from slavery to luxurious freedom. And why do we recline tonight when on other nights we just sit normally? And again, the answer is similar where we are expressing our freedom and the luxury of freedom. And that's a reminder about God's redemptive nature that he provided us this freedom. So you have these questions of why do you recline? Why do you dip? Why do you eat matzah? Um, and then in a Haggadah, the answer is pretty much given in the next paragraph, uh, which is, you know, which begins with Avadim Hayinu, we were slaves in Egypt and God took us out of slavery. And so that's the paragraph in it from in the Haggadah the Jewish answer, but as Ida mentioned, that same sentiment is recorded in the Quran. So we were able to answer those questions uh, with a reading from the Quran. There's a lot about Moses in the Quran, and I'm very familiar with the second longest chapter of the Quran uh, that talks about um, the children of Israel and how they were delivered um, uh, from the people of Pharaoh. So it, it, it kind of just it, it's, it kind of just fit together very very nicely. And to, for listeners, tell us what that chapter is. So it's chapter two, which is Surah Baqarah, and the verses are um, forty-seven to fifty, um, and it's basically reminding us about the struggles of the children of Israel when they were delivered from Pharaoh. So it sort of describes it very similarly to how it is in the Torah, uh, in, the, in the Haggadah. So it, it was a, a really interesting uh, comparison. I think, you know, when we look at the Quran, it's kind of like a, an adventure in a way. Um, the answers aren't easy to, very easy to find. You have to put a little bit of effort into it. And of course, you know, sort of Ramadan is the month of Quran. It's the month when the Quran was first revealed. And so each night of Ramadan, we, um, you know, in the mosque, they recite a 30th of the Quran each night. And what I tried to do is read the translation because I'm not an Arabic speaker. I tried to read at least a 30th of the translation before I go in uh, to, to pray uh, at the mosque. I have a, an idea of what he's saying. And a lot of the time when people say, I'm new to the Quran, What's a good way to start? And I always say, start with chapter 12. It's, it's a whole story, especially if you know who Joseph is from other traditions. Um, it's a good um, introduction to reading the Quran um, because it's, it's got it's, the whole story is right there. There are a few differences uh, between the, the Torah story and the Quranic story, but there's so many similarities.
You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break, continuing my conversation with Dina Grant and Ida Mansour. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining my conversation with Dina Grant, acting dean and associate professor of Jewish studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace, and Ida Mansour, the field education director for Hartford International University this year, Ramadan and Passover will cross over. And so the two decided that the calendar created an opportunity for learning and sharing that they couldn't pass up. Let's get back to the conversation. How do these holidays become opportunities to go back to these ancient stories. It was really interesting. I was talking to the rabbi about, there's a tradition that talks about how um, various scriptures were first revealed during the month of Ramadan. For instance, there's the books that were revealed to Abraham, and that was on the first day of Ramadan. And then it mentions the Torah on the sixth day of Ramadan. And I was talking to the rabbi about this, and he said, yes, in that tradition, um, the Torah was first revealed on the 6th of Sivan, which is a, a lunar month. So it's an interesting that it's the 6th of that lunar month. And so that was like a really interesting to me. Uh, you know, when I'm talking to Dina, we were talking about we start the fast at dawn. Many will say, oh, you start at sunrise. And I have to always, re- you know, correct them and say, no, we start at dawn, which is quite a bit earlier than sunrise. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we were talking about how do we know when it's the dawn? And in our scripture, we're told, you know, it's when you can tell the difference between a white thread and a black thread without artificial light. 
And, and Dina would say, well, we have the same thing. It's between a white thread and a blue thread. Uh, so there are lots of these these little details that are so similar and so interesting. Dina, as you hear Ida talking about those similarities and the way that the tradition and the rituals of the month involve kind of revisiting the Quran, is there a similar attention to scripture during Passover? Well, it involves a lot of uh, direction about what is to done. The direction really originates from narratives in typically the book of Exodus, but also in the book of Deuteronomy. So the Haggadah will go through passages in, say, Exodus, for instance, and say, these are the 10 plagues that we read in Exodus, and here's how we know they are 10. And so the Haggadah is often commenting and interpreting and giving many different interpretations about aspects of the Exodus account. And then you'll engage in a ritual related to the narrative that you either just recited or that you will recite in a bit. So it's really interwoven. The narrative of scripture and the commentary on scripture and the physical reenactment of scripture is all interwoven into this moment in time. And that's why we refer to it as a reenactment, where we are using the Torah as our foundation to understand God's redemptive nature and to enact it today based on the rituals from prior times, but for many, adding new rituals. I noticed one thing that happened in our Seder was one of our professors noticed in the Haggadah that the language is male-centric, and that's because our traditional liturgy uses second male, third male, singular, and plural. Basically, it's gendered male. And she asked if the the blessings could be changed to be more gender-inclusive. And it's, it's an example where the answer is not, not so simple, because it really depends on, on your tradition and where you come from. Um, people who are more traditional feel that you need to retain the exact words of the liturgy. And people that perhaps are not will say, no, we want to change the liturgy to reflect more our sensibilities of today. So we decided for that night that we would keep the Hebrew liturgy as is to not change that. But the English translation, which is for all of us who are understanding and trying to, you know, relate it to us today, we could change those uh, to be more gender inclusive. So there's, you know, there's a push and pull when you're using an ancient sacred text to uh, inform your understanding today. As with most things in Judaism, it depends on where you're coming from and depends on, for instance, your denomination and your tradition. I would say there's a lot more leeway to add things to the Haggadah, um, it, even in the Orthodox tradition, that, that there are in other contexts because it's uniquely among all the traditions to reenact. There are many different Haggadot from all traditions that will focus on a theme. I know I've seen a um, Haggadah that's focused on, on uh, hunger insecurity, food insecurity, um, especially because part of the Haggadah, the, the, the focus of Passover is on moving from slavery to freedom, from not having to having. The matzah is a reminder of not having. And so 
I, I've seen a Haggadah that picks up on what's going on now today with hunger and what perhaps we can do to help alleviate the situation. I've seen a gender-inclusive Haggadah. I've seen a feminist Haggadah. There, there, there are so many. Um, of course, there are the children's Haggadot, uh, which are fun because they're the ones with the pictures. Some folks are concerned about this idea of melding or bringing together traditions that are quite distinct in ways and overlooking those differences in an effort to feel good. Yeah, I mean, that was front of mind when we were developing this, because it, it, it did seem to me that I, that that could be a criticism that's so obvious. We wanted to make sure that we did not dilute either of the traditions. And so we, which is why we interspersed our traditions and we did uh, learnings, but we didn't, we didn't meld passages or blessings. It's easier to talk about interreligious dialogue uh, than it is to, in some ways, to do it because you're worried that you're going to do something that's just for the sake of finding common ground. And I think that's dangerous because it's dilutive. You know, if you try to focus only on your commonalities so that people feel good and so that you feel good and you're only focusing, oh, hey, look how similar this is. Look how similar that is. For the Seder, we were able to see differences. People were, I think even I was uncomfortable with my not knowing of certain things. And part of interreligious engagement is, sitting in that uncomfortability. And so if we diluted it and if we merged it so that we would all be comfortable, I don't think we would be doing what we're out here to do. I learned a lot about the Seder and I learned a lot about the food. So for instance, um, what can we both eat um, that would be okay? Um, and so, you know, we, we, we kind of went through menu after menu and then we came to the conclusion that, you know, fish is okay for, for both faiths. And so, um, we had salmon, you know, so, I mean, so sort of those, those understands and even, even the way in which it's prepared, how does food keep kosher, you know, sort of in terms of it should be, it should be prepared in a kosher kitchen. It was a, a lot of discussion and learning about the other even in terms of the Islamic side, you know, sort of, okay, this is halal, um, this is kosher. Next year, that still may be a, an overlapping, maybe by a day. Uh, I think there's between, a day overlap, yeah. Between Ramadan and, and Passover. But otherwise, it's another 31 years that we'll have to wait. We can do that, I don't Another 31 years. Wow. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to mention was that um, initially when we started making the Haggadah, um, you know, we were thinking of putting the Arabic script uh, for the Adhan and for the Quran, etc. And then I, I kind of took that out um, because you know, it has the word of God in it. Um, and we had this conversation well, so actually we kept the name of God as it is written in our liturgy. We kept that out as well. We used um, the kind of traditional 
acronym because you're handing these Haggadot out. And I think similar to your tradition, when you have the name of God written on something, you can't just throw it out. Um, so we, we kept the name of God out and used an acronym instead. And you generated a news article in the Hartford Current. We did. It was uh, quite a surprise to see that on, on the day. <laughs> we hope that by um, learning, teaching and doing, we can model, you know, model for others that it's okay to talk to somebody about their religion. It's, it, you know, it's okay to be uncomfortable. And um, I was really excited that it was in the the current because, you know, we've already had people email us asking for advice, asking for our Haggadah. Um, you know, that's that's really a part of our mission. Mm. This happened on Sunday. Muslims and Jews gathered to uh, share rituals and to learn. Did the global conversations or the global um, instability, especially in the Middle East, did that come up? We prepared responses in case somebody wanted to bring it up. But this is, a you know, this is exactly why I, I think we need things like this, because there are problems and there, there's a lot going on, but what's going on in Israel is not everything. It's important that when you can to come together and engage and create relationships, because once you have relationships, it does become easier. So we have a peace building program and the director of the peace building program, we actually enlisted her to have a facilitated dialogue about Israel-Palestine. One of the things that she said when you have a dialogue like that is to make sure that everybody is comfortable, um, that there is trust. And even in terms of the language we used, I remember before we started the, you know, talking about it, in terms of the language we used, do you want to say the Holy Land? Do you want to say Israel? Do you want to say Palestine? She, she was in trying to make sure that she used the right language because it's very important to use the right language. We met in a, like a, a neutral place, so she wanted it to be very neutral. And she had like set questions that she had written beforehand to have each of us express how we felt. And you know, beforehand, she she basically said, "Okay, this is your time," and you know, the other person, you know, please do not interrupt. And because you know, the nice thing is because we have a good relationship, Dina and I it was easier to start um, a dialogue. And basically, I mean, I, I was very, you know, candid and I shared my experiences, um, you know, going to the Holy Land. And while I did that, Dina very graciously listened to what I had to say. And I think for many, it's that we, we don't feel heard on both sides. Um, when we look at Facebook, for instance, what our feeds are, they're so dramatically different get one side of the picture and she gets the other side of the picture and so it's so important to come together and discuss and be respectful of one another and know that we've been we, we've been you know sort of um, uh, sort of exposed to a certain side of the question and not the whole story Ida Mansour is the Field Education Director for Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. Dina Grant is the Acting Dean and Associate Professor of Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. 
The materials that they created for their model Seder and Iftar are available on this week's show notes at interfaithradio.org. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Stay with us. 